0: Good morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 for us. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Follow along in your Bible or on your device. It will help during the sermon if you can see what it's saying for yourself. So John chapter 6, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 15, and then we'll pray. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. We can know you, through what you've spoken. We can know you because you are a God who reveals yourself. You could hide yourself from us, God, and we would not be able to reach you or discover you. We can't in our own power. But you reveal yourself because you're a gracious God. And Lord, what we need more than anything else, what our souls need is to know you, to be near you. And so we bless you, God, for revealing yourself to us. And our prayer is this morning that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes in our hearts to see what's there in your word, to see the glory that's there, And to love you, to love Jesus, to love what you have to say to us. So please, would you help us now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in the Gospel of John. During Easter, we took a little break, a one-week break, but we're back. We're in chapter 6. Now, in John chapter 5, which we just finished, if you remember, it starts with a miracle, Jesus goes and he heals a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And then the rest of the chapter is a conversation that comes out of that miracle. Because the Jews want to know, why are you healing on the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? And Jesus spends the rest of the chapter explaining who he is and why the Jews don't believe him. Now, chapter 6 is similar because it starts with two miracles Jesus is going to feed these 5,000. Then he's going to walk on water. But this miracle of feeding the 5,000 is what's going to start a conversation that's going to fill up the the rest of chapter 6. So it's similar to chapter 5. There's a sign. There's a sign. And they're called signs in John because they point to something else. When Jesus is doing these miracles, he's not just entertaining us. These are signs that are pointing to who he is and the kind of Savior he is. That's what we want to see. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to do it in four sections. We're going to start by making an observation about dependence, our dependence and our need for prayer. Then we're going to talk about the miracle itself. So those are the first two sections. Now, We're going to then talk about two roles, two positions that the people believe that Jesus is going to fill. So they call him the prophet. You saw that in verse 14. And then they want to make him king in verse 15. The people are right. He is the prophet. And he is a king. But they don't know what to do with him. They don't know what kind of prophet and king he is. And so in the last two sections, so point three and point four, we're going to be asking, what should we do with the prophet? And then, finally, what should we do with this king? So that's where we're going as we look at John chapter six. So let's start by saying a word about dependence and our need to pray from this passage. Look at what Jesus does to Philip. Starting in verse 5, lifting up his eyes, Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, "200 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip immediately recognizes the magnitude of this problem. So 200 denarii would be about seven months' salary for a laborer. And he's saying, even if we had that much money to buy that much bread, everybody would only get a little. That's a problem. The text tells us there are about 5,000 men. Now, Matthew, when Matthew's telling us about this miracle, he says that number, 5,000, doesn't even include women and children. So we don't know how many are there. It could be 10,000 people. And so Philip's going, what do you you mean? Where are we going to get enough bread for these people? It would be seven months' salary to pay for them to get a little. Now, verse 6 says that Jesus asks Philip, what to do in order to test him. Jesus wasn't joking with Philip. He's testing him. He's giving Philip a test. Now, what kind of test is this? How would Philip have passed this test? Is Jesus testing Philip to see how resourceful Philip is? Is he testing Philip to see how smart Philip is? How good he is at organizing volunteers? Is that how Philip would have passed the test? Philip would have passed the test if he's like, I need quick, 100 people. I need a lot of money. Let's get some carts. And let's see how fast we can get people bread. Is that how Philip would have passed the test? No. That's not how Philip passes. Verse 6 says, Jesus knew that he was going to multiply bread and fish to feed the people. So what's the test for Philip? The test is whether or not Philip will ask Jesus for help. That's how you pass the test. There's a big problem. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, Philip, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, man? That's a big problem. Your life is full of things that you cannot handle. Have you ever heard the saying, God will never give you more than you can handle? That's not true. Your life is full of things that you can't handle. Your life is full of things right now you can't handle. It will be full of things that you can't handle. That's just a fact. Don't fight it by sticking your head in the sand come to grips with the fact that you need Jesus. You need his forgiveness for your failures, and you need him to do the things that you can't do. Jesus turned to Philip, and he's saying, how are you going to fix this, man? And there are lots of areas, areas in your life where Jesus could do the same to you and say, how are you going to fix this? He wants us to ask him. If your response when you face problems in your life is, you know what? I've got enough. I can do this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to attack the problem. You fail the test. Jesus wants to lean our needs into Him. We've got burdens. We're full of burdens. Anybody feel burdened in here? He wants us to take our burdens and He wants us to cast them on Him in prayer. That's what Jesus wants. So do you pray? Do you pray? And when you pray, you actually trust that God heard you. So I just ask for help, and I'm trusting that he actually heard me and that he's going to do something about it. Or are you just a nervous wreck? Do you pray and then trust, you know what? God heard me. I don't know how he's going to deal with this, but he heard me. Or do you just rush to fix things on your own without praying? If so, you might fix things, but not in a way that honors God. So Jesus wanted Philip to look at this massive problem and ask. And he wants me and you to do the same thing. That's what's going on here. Now, let's talk about the miracle. Philip just stays baffled. <laughs> we don't. That's just how it ends with Philip. Philip's like, 200 denarii, Jesus. Okay, so Philip fails. Philip gets an F minus on the test. But Jesus is gracious. Now, Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. Philip failed, but Jesus is kind. He's kind, and he's patient. Let's start in verse 8 and see what Jesus does. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, "Gather, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So in this amazing creative awesome work, Jesus takes five loaves of bread. Now barley was what usually what poor people ate. So these were not we're not talking about big loaves. We're talking little loaves for a boy, five of them. probably two pickled fish, and he feeds 5,000 men, probably upwards of 10,000 people, if you include women and children. We don't know. Now, again, this miracle is called a sign. You can see that in verse 14. And like a sign on a road, it's pointing to something else. It's not simply meant to entertain us. So what's it pointing to? Consider the kind of miracle this is. It's Jesus providing food for God's people. Does that tell you anything about the kind of God we have? He's a provider. He cares for us. And verses 11 through 13 emphasize the fact that everyone's full. Philip's worried people aren't even going to get a little And 11 through 13 emphasize how full everyone is. Jesus took the loaves, look at verse 11. When he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten so, kids, this is biblical warrant for not finishing everything on your plate. There were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Honor your mother and father. Jesus is providing abundantly. When God provides for us, he's not skimping. You know what I mean by that? I mean, depending on where you are in life right now. What you're going through in life right now, you might not feel like God is giving you all that you need or all that you should have. Now, we all know people that if you ask them for something, they're going to make you feel guilty about it, aren't they? We know people like this. I don't know if it's a grandparent or parent or aunt or uncle. You know, you've got to ask them for help. And they may help, but they're not going to be happy about it. And they're going to give you as little help as they possibly can in order to fulfill their duties towards you. You will be tempted because of suffering and hardship in this life to think that God is like that. You will be tempted at some point to think that God is grouchy and he's tight-fisted with his stuff. Don't take my stuff. That's not what God's like. He's an abundant provider for us. He's generous. You know how he tells us to be a cheerful giver? He's the most cheerful giver. He is. He's abundant to those who come to him through Jesus. But you're going to need to remind yourself of that. You're going to need to remind yourself of the fact that he's generous. He's a cheerful giver. He's abundant. Because sometimes in this life, he's going to withhold things from you for your good in his wisdom. But it's not because he's greedy with his stuff. He's an abundant provider and he's wise. And it will be clear to us why in the end. I think that's one of the things verses 11 through 13 are telling us, that he's abundant. He is abundant. Now, there are 12 baskets full left over, which could be showing us or showing the disciples, there were 12 disciples, that God's going to take care of them as they care for others. It could also be showing that just as God provided for the 12 tribes of Israel, when they were out in the wilderness, after he freed them from Egypt, that Jesus is providing abundantly for God's people. Now, both of those things are true, by the way. The reason there are 12 disciples is because Jesus is saying, I'm making a new people of God here, just like the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is a parallel that's going on. There's a parallel. Jesus feeding these people who are far away from their homes is like how God fed the people in the wilderness with manna. Now, in a few weeks, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to verse 31, but we're going to see that the conversation that comes out of this miracle is going to go towards Moses and the people in the wilderness being fed by manna. So we're going to see that a comparison is going to show up between Jesus and Moses. That's going to be a topic of conversation. Now, the people in our passage, the people who are here at the miracle, they know that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, which Luke read for us earlier, that Moses promised a prophet like him. Would come someday. And these people are seeing some similarities between what Moses did and what Jesus is doing. And that's why they say in verse 14 of our passage, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they see that Jesus is like Moses, and so he must be the one that Moses promised would come. Amazing here's where we've been so far. We've seen that Jesus wants Philip to depend on him for help. And we've seen Jesus provide abundantly for Philip and for all these people who are there. And he provides in such a way that these people recognize this must be the prophet like Moses, the one that Moses said would come. And he might be our promised king. We're going to see that in verse 15. And the people are right, They're right about Jesus being the prophet, and they're right about Jesus being the king, but he's not the kind of prophet and king they think he's going to be. And so for these last two points, we're going to ask, if Jesus is the prophet like Moses, what should we do with him? What should our response be to him? And then we're going to do the same thing about Jesus as king. What should our response be to Jesus as king, So let's talk about Jesus as the prophet like Moses. What should we do with him? In verse 14, the people recognize this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 18. It's what Luke read earlier. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read it again. I'm just going to ask this question before I read it. What did Moses tell the people they were supposed to do with the prophet once he arrived? Here we go. Deuteronomy 18:15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I myself will require it of him. What were these people supposed to do when the prophet like Moses came along? They were supposed to listen to him. That's what God says they should do when he comes on the scene. He speaks for God. They should listen. That's not what most of them do. We're going to see this later. But they say, this must be the prophet that Moses promised. He can give us bread. Give us bread. Give us bread. But they don't listen to him, which is what they were supposed to do when the prophet came. You can believe that Jesus can provide for you physically without trusting him. You can believe that he's going to take care of your physical needs and he can do miracles to help your body, feed you, make you well, and still not trust him. Listening to his words and living on what he tells you is the true mark of discipleship. Do you listen to him? In this book, I'm just going to say things up to this point in our, in our text, in John. Up to this point in John, the things that Jesus has said. Jesus has told us in the Gospel of John that we must be born again. That if we're going to even see the kingdom of God, if we're going to be able to see it, the Holy Spirit has to change us. Are you listening? Are you listening? Jesus told us that he's come from heaven to be lifted up for our sins so that by believing, by believing, you can have eternal life. Are you listening to him? He tells us that the deepest reason people don't come to him is not because we don't know enough. It's because we love sin. He tells us that he alone can satisfy the thirst of our souls. Are you listening to him? He tells us that if we want to worship God rightly, we have to do it by knowing the truth about God and loving that truth. That's how you worship. He tells us that he's going to judge the world But that if you hear him and believe him, you've already passed out of judgment into life. Are you listening to him? That's what matters. Are you listening? And in all the other things that Jesus has to say, and he has to say a lot, he has to say a lot about what we think and what we feel and the way we act. Are you willing to listen to him even when it grates against what you already think and what you feel? Or will you simply try to use Jesus like these people did for bread or for a car or for a job or a visa or success in this life? Listen to him. And by the way, when I say that we must listen to Jesus, I don't mostly mean that you should listen to the voices and the impressions in your own heart and mind, mostly. Do I think that God can give us impressions? Do I think that God can speak to us prophetically? Yes. But when I say you should listen to Jesus, I mostly mean this book because your impressions can be wrong. You should know that. This book will never be wrong. The people who live on their impressions mostly instead of this book when they have access to it are really just people who like listening to themselves. And those who listen to this word are actually the ones who are the most trustworthy to recognize his voice when they hear it elsewhere. So give yourself to listening to the voice of Jesus in this book. Now, in verse 15, the people want to make Jesus king. He is a king. But what kind of king is he? These people get it wrong. So we need to ask, what should we do with him as king? Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, let's talk about something. Our text tells us there were 5,000 men. And all the Gospels that report this miracle, so they all do, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us there are 5,000 men. Now, Matthew tells us there were women and children there as well. Why aren't they counted? Why are only the men counted? It's not because... The gospel writers are sexist. In Luke chapter 2, when Luke records the explosive growth of the church after Peter preaches, he counts men, women, and children, anyone who believes. So what's going on here? Now, I don't know all the reasons that John only reported men, but if you think about counting in the Bible... Why in the Bible are there times when only men are counted? For the priesthood is one. Or when you're counting your military force. That's why you would count men. When you're counting the strength of an army, that's when you would count men and not women and children. And that's a problem in this chapter. And that's a big problem when you get to verse 15. These people want to take Jesus and make him king by force. And there's an army of 5,000 men who are ready to go. Jesus could start a revolution right now. That's what's happening at this miracle. If you've got an army of 5,000 men who are being led by a man who can feed them at will and can do who knows what that would be helpful in a battle, you could have a lot of power. That's what these people are thinking. He's the king of the world. This is the one God had promised, isn't he? Let's do this. Let's conquer the world. That's what they want. Because they don't understand the kind of king that he is. They don't understand the kind of king he is in two ways, at least two ways. There are lots of ways they don't understand what kind of king he is. We're just going to talk about two. First, this king has come to die for his enemies. He has to die in order to defeat our sin and the death we deserve. If Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead, if he just took the throne in Jerusalem and conquered the world, we've we've played this. Uh, we've played this thought game before. What if Jesus takes the throne, defeats the Roman, marches across the globe conquering? He surely could have done it. He would have established a pretty great government. It would be pretty great to live under the government of Jesus Christ. But your sin would not be paid for, and you would still be guilty forever. You would not be freed from hell or from the slavery of sin or freed from the curse of death. And that's the great enemy that Jesus has come to conquer. He's come to conquer our guilt. When he comes the first time, he doesn't come to destroy his enemies. He's come to destroy the thing that makes us enemies, which is our guilt and our sin by taking it on Him. Self. and he rises from the dead so that you can have God which is far greater than living under the best government you can imagine that's why Jesus withdraws it cannot be that he would be king without conquering the greatest enemy death and our guilt and our separation from God he came to die that's what these people don't understand that's the first thing they don't understand and here's the second thing Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. In chapter 18 of this book, Jesus is going to stand before the Roman governor, whose name is Pontius Pilate, and he's going to say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And what Jesus means is that he did not come this time to build a kingdom in this life. This is really important for Christians. This is really important. If we're going to receive Jesus rightly as a king, it's important for us to get this. Jesus' kingdom mainly comes to us spiritually now. And not mainly physically until the life to come. When you trust Jesus in this life, your spiritual situation changes Instantly, boom, things change. Your sins are forgiven, and you're a new person. You're forgiven, you're adopted. God's your father instantly when you trust him. You receive the Holy Spirit to change your desires, to make you slowly more and more like Jesus. But your physical situation doesn't change mainly. You may get a healing in this life or two but you will still get sick. You will physically die. Some of you will struggle with financial burdens and conflict with your family and your friends. And Jesus, he can help you with those things. But that kind of physical deliverance is not guaranteed in this life, and he may not in his wisdom. He's doing things beyond our comprehension, which means that if we're going to receive Jesus rightly as king, We should receive him first as a savior who conquers our sin and who is working on our souls to make us like him. That's what he's doing firstly. He dies and rises to deal with our sin, to reconcile us to God. And that means if we're going to receive him as a king rightly, we should want the things he wants in our hearts and in other people's hearts, souls. And it means we shouldn't seek to build a kingdom In this world, we shouldn't be trying to get lots of stuff and be the man in this life or even make the church some ruling authority in this world. That's not what Jesus has come to do. Not in this life. Now, we should care about this world. We should. We should care about physical suffering, we should care about our stewardship of this world. So you should care about your health. You should steward your health for Christ's sake. And sometimes that means using up your health for his sake. Don't hope in living forever in this life. Care about the way you use your money, but use it for his sake. Use it up for his sake. Don't store it up for this life. Care about politics and justice as far as you can be involved For Christ's sake, but no, you will not and cannot build his kingdom politically here on earth. Seeking his kingdom means that we are seeking to help this world treasure Jesus. We care about physical suffering. We do. And we want to alleviate it where we can. And we want to put a priority on building into people spiritually so that their sins would be forgiven. They hear the good news of what Jesus has done. They become more and more like him. They're able to treasure him and hope in him even when they're suffering, even when their health fails and their finances fail and when they're in their hospital bed in their last hours. That's what we want to build into people, a hope that lasts beyond this life. This is why Jesus withdraws from the crowd. He's not here to establish physical perfection, not even for his church in this life. He's reconciling sinners to himself. He's changing them and changing us as we love people for his sake. In the world to come, he then will make all things new. It's not that we don't hope for a physical kingdom. We do. It's just not in this life. He is going to bring it. That's our hope. So, in this text, Jesus is our provider. He wants us, like Philip, to depend on him and to know that he's abundant. Even when he's providing in ways that we don't understand, he will provide. And he wants you to lean your life into him. And because he's the prophet, listen to him. Devote yourself to knowing what he says and to trusting what he says. And he's a king. His kingdom's not of this world. So live in this world seeking to love those around you and growing and treasuring him yourself as the one who dies for our sins. Who dies for the sins of any who would trust in him and hoping for his kingdom to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even though we weren't there, we weren't there on the side of this mountain, when your son fed all these people, We can know what we need to know about him in that moment through your word. I pray that you would help us to trust you through your son. You are abundant. You have spoken to us. Make us humble people who listen to Jesus when it grates against our our existing thoughts and our existing feelings and what those around us are saying, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under your word and listen to your Son. And as we do, would you be glorified, Jesus, as our King, the one who rules over your people for their good, firstly in this life our great good, reconciling us to the Father, giving us life, sight, so that we can enjoy you, which is the greatest treasure we could ever have, and giving us a hope, King Jesus, that in the age to come you will make all things new. Make us those who honor the kind of king and prophet you are as we trust you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.